working up these five qualities, the dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and fun, working up those five qualities is the number one way to hack authority. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with Chase Hughes. He's been in the military for 20 years, teaching interrogation and behavior science on a tactical level. That means applied in the field. So many studies have been done proving that nonverbal communication is well over half of what is spoken, but somehow it's largely ignored in academics and life, at least the practical elements are. And we're gonna share a few dozen powerful tips that can't be found all over the internet and in these pop culture books. And we're gonna give you a real glimpse behind the curtain today. We're gonna learn influence and how to use social authority to change the course of someone's life, regardless of their occupation, regardless of yours or theirs for that matter. And seeing some of these methods exposed also levels the playing field for some people that are in maybe some manipulative relationships. So today, we're gonna discover stress-free ways to start observing people without being creepy. The bonus is that some of these exercises include watching a little bit of TV for those of you who are feeling extra lazy. We'll also explore how to train your brain to see gestures without feeling overwhelmed. And we'll discuss how to hack authority for influence and personal development. Jason, what'd you think of this one? Interesting stuff, right? Oh, it's fantastic. I've been sitting down every morning with my copy of uh, his book and going over the periodic table, which everybody should uh, go download when you get a chance from the show notes, because this is a, a lot of play along at home stuff. But man, it's fascinating. They did a really good job. Yeah, it's kind of cool to see somebody who does this stuff for real, teaches this stuff for real. Chase had so many things that we would discuss off air that he's like, this can't make it on the show because it's what I'm teaching, you know, elements of the U.S. government, dot, 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 dark side, too dangerous. So I'm just waiting for that stuff to get declassified so we can do another show because there was some pretty cool stuff in there that uh, we don't want to fall into the wrong hands. All right, here's Chase Hughes. You being on active duty in the U.S. military for two decades almost here. Give or take, yeah. You've been teaching interrogation and behavior science on a tactical level, and I assume what you mean by tactical level is hey, by the way, this stuff needs to actually work. Here's how you apply this stuff. Absolutely. And I, I remember getting books that were like persuasion books, and I got kind of tired of, of that same feeling. Like, this is great information if I'm, if I'm doing a PowerPoint somewhere and I want to look cool for a few minutes. And then I'd read through another book, and I, I just got tired of getting a few paragraphs of information out of a book. And I wanted a full-scale manual that was applicable in the field. And so you had to make it. I did, and that's that's what became the ellipsis manual. I've seen a lot of studies recently about nonverbal communication. It's 67% or 87% or 97% of whatever, of the equation, and what's spoken, the words, they don't even matter, and all these stu studies that have been misinterpreted, frankly. But somehow, a lot of nonverbal communication, which is one of the core things that we teach here at The Art of Charm, largely ignored in academics and largely ignored in every field other than more recently pop culture where people decided that they can watch one season of Lie to Me and then go back to their job and crush it. Oh, yes, unbelievable. So I wanna take a little bit of a look behind the curtain here, and I also like to take a peek on the dark side because I think a lot of manipulators use this stuff too. So if we have time, I'd love to get into that as well. What you were saying about this being ignored in, in academia is absolutely correct. I think the average psychotherapist or social worker goes through uh, years and years of training 
And all of that, it, they get maybe a half hour on body language. Um, and that's a psychotherapist with a, a graduate degree. And then these are the same guys who are going out there producing studies that say it's two thirds or some odd number of communication. And then nothing changes in the academic perspective. Right. I think there's the, the, the most common study that people are quoting and misquoting is the Moravian study, which says something like 67% of this is nonverbal, 30% of it is tonality, and some singular digit percentage, something like 7% are the words you use. Yeah. And so whenever people quote that, I just kind of think, well, you obviously haven't really put that to the test and really read into it. Because if you think that that's the case, go watch an Italian movie if you don't speak Italian and tell me exactly what's going on. You should be 93% accurate, right? Yeah. And you're not. And you're not. So what the hell does that actually mean? And then, of course, when you go to the people who worked on that study and used that study in other studies, they're like, oh, wait, yeah, that's not at all what that study means. It means that these are the signals that we're using and things like that, but it, you still need the whole picture in order to get an accurate perception, and you can't take pieces of it, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't really translate. And yet there are entire fields, there, there are many a professional out there giving a TED Talk or charging $1,000 an hour for consulting in corporations whose foundation is that work, and they don't understand it. I completely agree. I think that's misinterpreted on a daily basis. and I think. What's even worse is that people are using it to market products and saying the body language is the only thing you'll ever need to read. Everything else is just crazy. Nonverbal communication might be somewhere around two thirds of communication, but you're not going to understand the other third without hearing a person talk and understanding what they say without the syntax. Right. And if you're 33 percent off when somebody is trying to tell you something important, you might as well just be entirely wrong because you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a coin toss almost. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. It's a, it's a, it's an awkwardly shaped coin toss. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, how did you get into this? It sounds like when you were young, you were a terrible student. So we have that partially in common. I was awful as a as a student. I if if I got like a C minus, it was a celebration. My parents would take me out to dinner. Wow. I failed out of high school miserably. Eventually, you know, I, I joined the Navy when I was 17 years old. Once I was in the Navy, uh, I was probably 18 or 19 years old, and uh, I started getting into pickup. And this was 1999, maybe 2000. And nobody really existed back then as far as pickup went. There were a few sleazy books and stuff out there. And I remember one of my friends asking me, like, oh, why don't you get that girl's number? And I was like, I don't think she likes me. He's like, oh, yeah, she she was doing this and this and listed all these nonverbal characteristics. So I went home that night and typed in on the Internet how to tell if a girl likes you. I got all these body language articles and it just I was hooked. It just it it seemed like I was seeing there's something that's been there all of my life. All of this nonverbal communication has been hidden and nobody talked about it. I never knew that it was important. And once I got good at it and I started getting good at it, I realized you really can kind of see behind people's masks just by reading body language. I'm talking about once you've studied it for quite some time and you've gotten good at it. And I think a lot of products nowadays and a lot of people seriously underestimate the amount of effort it would take to be good at it. There's so many things that say seven quick tricks to do this or easy ways to get something done. and in reality, if you consider just playing the piano and learning to play the piano at maybe a concert level, 
that would take you years and years of study. And a human being is just about infinitely more complex uh, than a piano. And they change every time you talk to them. They're always different. That's the equivalent of like seeing an ad online that says, learn to play a concert level piano in three weeks. <laughs> right. Except also three quick tricks. Three, science pianists hate him. This guy figured out how to play concert piano overnight. Yeah. Right. That that kind of thing. It, it's there are six quick tricks to become a heart surgeon over the weekend. <laughs> Sign me up. It it also is vastly different because of the way the brain is constructed. We already know from brain science, modern brain science, and up to date brain science that even our individual brains are wired differently. So not only is it become a concert pianist in three weeks, it's also on a piano that has 180,000 keys or something like that instead of the usual number of keys. What is it, Jason, 102 or something like that? 88. 88, okay, for some reason I thought pianos had uh, more, maybe keyboards do electronic ones. And so you have that and then also, and they're not arranged in the same way as the piano that you learned on a few years ago and it's not the same as the one you have at home and it's not the same one as I have here at school. You're gonna have to figure out where the keys are in the moment while you're trying to play. Yes. And that's what we're looking at when we're looking at verbal and nonverbal communication taken in concert with the different variety of factors that have environment and personality all roped in there together. So if that's the case, how am I so sure and how are you so sure that what we've got here, what you've got here is accurate and useful? The behavioral table of elements is, um, I think it's the most well-researched work. And I think it's it's being used in the field now. And the way that we use it is a cumulative uh, read. So it doesn't automatically mean X, Y, and Z happened. It produces a certain amount of numbers associated with each gesture so that seven interrogators can read a situation different ways, but there's a common interpretation. And you can gauge the amount of deception that's likely be taking place in an interrogation. And that's unique to interrogations, or are you using this in conversations of all kinds? It's absolutely applicable to anything. And when, the day I came up with the idea for this, uh, I was watching, reluctantly watching an episode of The Bachelor with my mother. And she was talking about how she liked uh, this girl and what her favorite girl was and how she hated the other one. And I said, well, the one you liked was just lying to them when they were in the hot tub. And uh, she was like, well, I just I wish I could use your eyes for just an hour so I could see this stuff. What a great use of modern cutting edge science <laughs> to look at The Bachelor. So it, The Bachelor was the reason uh, we came up with the behavioral table. That's great. Yeah. Forget all this stopping ISIS from the latest homegrown terror attack. We're trying to figure out who's going to win The Bachelor and who should win The Bachelor. Right. Is Tina going to make it to the end? Right. Who's who's going to get eliminated? Who gets voted off the the island? Uh, how do, though, we start to learn this stuff? Because if I look at the behavioral table of the elements, which we'll link in the show notes, by the way, well worth checking out. It's essentially a periodic table with a bunch of different gestures and behaviors and things like that. How do we start to even look at this behavior? Because if I look at a piano and I decide I'm gonna learn how to play this, there's gotta be a place to start without getting overwhelmed. I think it's just, now that we've accepted the idea that maybe we can learn this stuff, how do we look at that without going, all right, well, since we can't simplify it like we can in the book you and I were just talking about that, that we decided wasn't useful, 
the useful stuff seems very complicated. Where do we even begin without freaking out that we're never going to get it? I would say a lot of people get overwhelmed in the beginning because they realize that it's it's kind of a big it's a big undertaking. You've got to treat that journey kind of like a an experiment. And once you start observing behavior and you start really seeing how insecure every single person is around you, it's it's a humbling experience. It's kind of addictive in that once you are able to see like the weaknesses and the humanity of everybody, it kind of levels the playing field that humanizes everybody that would have otherwise been threatening or that seemed unapproachable. And you can kind of see through the social masks that everybody wears. And it's a humbling thing. And I would say at the beginning, once you're starting out, just see behavior for behavior's sake. Don't try to make an interpretation. Don't try to go flip through a book and figure out what everything means. Spend a week watching people's pupil dilation and seeing whether they're blinking fast or slow. Spend a week watching whether or not somebody's breathing into their chest or their stomach. Just make those small plans. Take it week by week and just make small observations without trying to interpret stuff. And I think that is absolutely the best way to go about it. I wish that I had that advice when I started. Right. So instead of thinking, all right, I got to figure out if this person is lying or if this person's under stress, just watch people talk and think, all right, well, they're breathing in through their stomach, meaning they're more relaxed or in their chest, meaning they're le- possibly they're, they're less relaxed. They're speaking with their arms crossed. Um, well, it is cold. Okay, cool. Instead of trying to interpret what that means, just look at the behavior so that we can start to develop an eye for looking at smaller behaviors instead of trying to look for them and interpret them in context in real time. Absolutely. Once you start making a habit of seeing behavior, it gets pushed from consciousness to kind of unconscious behavior, just like driving or learning how to ride a motorcycle. Uh, That takes a ton of your focus in the beginning until that stuff eventually, the operating the clutch or the brake or the gas, that stuff just naturally pushes itself back into your unconscious to where you can focus on other things. And is this going to look creepy? I mean, are we going to end up making too strong eye contact or staring at somebody a, a bit too much while they're talking? Or has this been something that your students have been able to do easily without being observed in a way that generates questions? I would say I don't think anybody would look creepy doing it. You're just making natural eye contact uh, is enough to observe most of this behavior. All right. So we look for breathing. We look for pupil dilation. How do we train our brain then to see gestures without feeling overwhelmed? Because, of course, that's separate. Or are we just again, we're having regular conversations and we're just noticing what they're doing with their hands, arms. Are we watching their feet? What else are we looking for? That's it, Jordan. I would say just watch the different parts of the body and how they interact with their environment and spend some spend a few weeks on that without trying to interpret it and just seeing the behavior for its own sake. So when we start noticing these behaviors, what do we do with them? Are we just mentally cataloging them? Do you encourage people to try to interpret them later after the conversation? What what do we do with these once we start to notice the hands, the breathing and the eyes? Uh, what took me uh, a few years to figure out is something you were doing as a kid, you know, keeping a, a behavior journal. And I would say writing this stuff down, write down what you're seeing every time you have a chance to do it. Write down the gestures that you're seeing more common in one person that you work with or this Starbucks barista. Every time she's there, she touches her chest when she says thank you. 
And then once you start learning the interpretation of behaviors, you can go back and look through all of these things and see the natural tendencies of the people that you interact with. And those tendencies will lead to some of their personality traits. And how do we know that those tendencies lead to personality traits? How do we start to map these things together? Seeing the correlation between somebody who is displaying insecure body language when they talk to you and uh, all up until the point when you ask them about a vacation that they just went on. You can see these little insecurities. You can see these little weaknesses in people just because of these small behaviors that you're able to see. Where does the behavioral table of elements come into this, right? You've got this big periodic table that, again, will be linked in the show notes. I'd love to learn, first of all, how you develop this and how we start using this in a practical way. We develop the behavioral table. Obviously, we watch The Bachelor. First step to anything productive is watching reality TV, right? Absolutely. So how to apply it in regular everyday life can be a little bit tricky, and I think you will need to carry it around. We had a wallet card that we give to our students, uh, the government clients and some law enforcement students who carry that around and use it in the field as one, as a training tool, and two, as an analysis tool. So a partner standing back watching his partner do a field interrogation or just interviewing somebody on the side of the road after an accident happened or something like that. So I would say using this as a training tool and using it as a reference are equally important. And the one that we have for download on the site uh, you can just hover over any of the elements on the table and it has a huge description that pops up then. The four different types of ways you can put your hands in your pockets or the different types of shoulder shrugs or breathing speed. So it'll give you all the information right there. And then we have to memorize this thing? I still haven't memorized the whole thing. We use it as a reference tool. So after an interaction has taken place, you can go back there and look at the behavior because the, the behavioral table is laid out where the top of the head's on the top, the feet are on the bottom, and the out, stuff that happens outside of our body is on the bottom two rows. So that would be like a post-interview analysis or a post, like a, a wrap-up, an after-the-game wrap-up. That's super useful. First of all, it makes way more sense why you organized the table in the way that you did. At first I thought, why is this not in alphabetical order? You're driving me crazy. But now that it's sort of geographically located uh, for the body, the arms are on the outside and things like that, I guess, and then outside the chart where the radioactive elements go on a regular periodic table are things that happen outside the body. Perfect, okay. This is good news because if we don't have to memorize this because we're using it as a post-game wrap-up type of thing, that means we never actually have to worry about this. The skill that we're actually training is observing eyes, feet, hands, breathing, and a couple of other things, shoulders and things like that. Once we have that right. down and we can journal that stuff, even make mental notes of it and then write them down after, we can decode an interaction a month later if we really need to. Absolutely, yes. That makes this entire endeavor a lot easier because I think a lot of folks think I've got to read this body language in real time, come to an interpretation in the moment, use that in combination with environmental context, and then have some sort of accurate conclusion at the end by the time they're done talking. And that's not really what we're doing here. Right. And and the more you do these wrap ups, like the post game wrap up, the better you will get over time at reading it in the moment. And you have to continually do this to force that awareness, force the unconscious competence on yourself. 
So how do we test ourselves and see if we're doing this right? Because that's the problem, right? We can always, we can observe tons of behavior, we could take a thousand pages of journal entries, how do we check and see whether or not we're even close to being accurate? You can use the behavioral table as a test as well. You can ask whether or not you saw these gestures, click on it, see the description of it, make sure you saw that and you interpreted it correctly. So this is a, a grading tool as well. So we wanted it to be a one-page document of everything that could possibly happen with body language. Can you explain how that checking, that testing works? Because I'm, I'm a little unclear on that. How would I use the table to decide whether or not things I'm observing are, are correct? So let's say you saw a conversation, or you, even if you're watching YouTube, and say you watched Conan O'Brien interview somebody, and you saw someone cross their legs, and you made an estimation about it, they cross their arms, they touch their face, like uh, say they scratch their nose, and they were picking lint off of their shirt towards the end of the interview. So as long as you identified all of those, and if you want to test yourself on the knowledge of them, uh, that's where you would check up on the behavioral table and watch it again and see if you missed anything. Okay, so once we get those behaviors together, we might see something like, well, how do we know, okay, this person is nervous or this person has a certain set of emotions or is that not what the periodic table is about? Yes, the periodic table will measure uh, uncertainty and nervousness and tension. So the further you go to the right of that behavioral table, the more likely it is to be stress or deception. So it's top of the body to the bottom on the, the geographic location on the table and left to right is least stressed to most stressed or most deceptive. Right, and just for those of you following along at home, you can listen to this interview. You don't have to worry about memorizing where these are on the table because when you play this show again and the table is in front of you, they're color-coded and like you said, it is left to right. It works in many ways like an actual periodic table of elements works in that the higher stress elements are towards the right and shaded in orange slash red, correct? Yes, absolutely. Very convenient. Okay, cool. So we can watch YouTube, we can get these behaviors down. Um, so we can't really tell if somebody then is lying to us directly, right? Or lying to Conan in this case. I would say that uh, if you use the behavioral table to try to detect deception, that your odds will be much better than a polygraph. And a polygraph is only about a, a coin toss away from, from being right or wrong either way. And the behavioral table uses likelihood of deception indicators and groups them together. So if you have a score that's above a certain number, you can pretty much reasonably guess that somebody is being deceptive. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Chase Hughes. We'll get right back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. 
We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Let's get back to Jordan and Chase Hughes. So we're looking at lie detection here. It's really, really hard to do. A lot of people watch shows like Lie to Me and think they can do it, which is ridiculous. We have people getting certified in microexpressions who then think they can do this. We have Harvard studies that are being misquoted where people think, oh, maybe if I learn this, I can do this. Are we able to use the behavioral table and have a better chance of deciding whether or not someone is telling the truth? Because as you mentioned in your work and as every accurate <laughs> truth teller will tell us, that you can never decide with certainty based on nonverbal communication whether or not someone's telling the truth. But what are we doing here? What are the, what are the, what are the odds then look like when we get good at this type of behavior observation and use the table to decode it? Since the deception indicators are on the far right side of the table, those are rated as a deception likelihood of 4.0. So when you reach a 12 or higher for a cluster of gestures, so during the time that someone is answering a question, basically, you can reasonably assume that the person is being deceptive or if you're an interrogator that you need to dig a little deeper. Okay. And it's more accurate than a polygraph, which is just about as accurate as a coin toss. 
That's a little scary because I think people normally assume that polygraph tests are, well, this is how you tell if someone's lying. You hook them up to an EKG meter and if they're lying, that little pencil thing goes out of control. The end. I'm still flabbergasted that uh, the government still uses those to vet employees. And they're actually, if you read some of the research on them, they're biased against people who are telling the truth. And most people fail polygraphs because they say too much, not because the machine measured deception. And that's bad news because people, of course, who want to cooperate oftentimes are the ones that are doing most of the talking. And the cagey ones, the ones that have something to hide, are the ones that pass. Right. And then uh, the most dangerous time and during a polygraph examination is when they're taking the machine off and the guy tells you the interview's over. And you think the polygraph uh, is the is the lie detector. And then the, the guy keeps asking you a few more questions as he's unstrapping the machine from you and the and the machine's turned off. That's where a lot of people fail. Because that's where the actual polygrapher, if that's the proper term, is still running the test himself. It's just that he's done using the machine. Yes. So the interviews is continuing. And he'll ask you a few follow-up questions like, yeah, well, we talked about your trip to the liquor store last Thursday. The machine had something funny on there. I can't go back and look at it right now, but what was up with that? And then those are the follow-up, post-interview follow-up questions that'll really nail you. Well, that's strange and seems, seems to prove the assertion that the machine's not really doing the heavy lifting there, which is bad news. You mentioned pre-show that watching Conan's a great way to see actual stress signals without having to interrogate someone because in around 50% of his guests, he manages to get around 15 to 22 stress signals. Why is that the case? I think Conan has the ability to elicit those responses out of the people that come on the show. He, The way he interviews people and the way he speaks to people produces some of that anxiety behavior on the right side of the behavioral table. Why do you think that is? Because he's super tall, possibly, or is there something else going on here? He has a strong, authoritative style of speaking, and he is comfortable making prolonged eye contact and asking strange questions that other talk show hosts would probably feel uh, might be inappropriate. So he tends to place people in those situations to really throw them off guard. And when he does try to throw his guests off guard, they usually exhibit some of those behaviors on the far right side of the behavior table. And those aren't necessarily deception indicators. That's a just stress. There's no behavior for deception. There's no micro expression for deception. So all of those things are absolutely just stress. You're measuring clusters of stress. And that's how people get closer to deception. But for people training to spot deception indicators and stress, Conan is one of the best places to start. He's got a a knack for producing those anxiety behaviors in in celebrities. And that's that's obviously an excellent way to work this, because if a celebrity, somebody who's maybe won a nice Golden Globe for acting cool under fire, can't do it on live TV, they're not going to edit that out. They're not going to do another take. These are, in many ways, going to be as close as you can get to perfect video of real people in a stressful situation that you can repeat and replay as many times as you want. And in every, well, virtually every case, this person is not a criminal, they're just under stress because of the environment and the person that they're interacting with. Absolutely, very well said. You mentioned that there's no signal for deception itself, only signals for stress. Yes. Why is it that looking for truth signals 
is the best way to spot deception? First of all, what are truth signals, and how do we use this to spot deception if all we can really do is spot stress? Good question. I think looking for truth signals and training your brain to see truth signals, which are someone who is open, who is relaxed and comfortable, and just completely, basically just vulnerable body language. So spotting somebody who's just communicating really authentically is a good example of truth signals. And training your brain to look for those truth signals means that when you see deception, it's going to stand out much more. So you're training your unconscious to see truth signals and you're looking for truth signals and spending lots of time on that. When you actually experience deception, which is going to be often, it will stand out. And once you start seeing deception, once you study what deception really is and how to read it on the table, you'll notice that almost everybody you know will lie to you. Can you narrate and paint us a picture of an example of this happening in conversation? Doesn't have to be a real example. I realize a lot of the military and, and intelligence stuff you do is is on lockdown, but can you narrate a hypothetical in which you're looking for a truth signal, you find it, and then you see something different happen that indicates deception? When you are looking for a truth signal, uh, let's give an example here. If you are asking someone a question, where they were on such and such night, and you would expect someone to open their palms, which is a display of sincerity, but they touch their face as soon as they start talking again. So usually, almost all the time, facial touching is a sign of nervousness. And you looking for truth signals, which would be open palms, hands down on the table, just natural body movements, seeing the person touch their face is automatically going to set off an alarm. We're looking for something that we're expecting versus thinking, okay, whatever happens now, it's gotta match, right? Because if we're looking for deception, that could be any behavior that isn't the one or two that should naturally follow an authentic answer. Is that what you're telling me right now? Absolutely. So if we're thinking, oh, where were you last night? And they start talking and their palms are open and they're narrating a story about how they went to Jack in the Box and then they came home and went to sleep, it looks normal, it looks authentic, they've got a couple of readily readable behaviors, palms up, their arms are uncrossed, they've got a little bit of a head tilt or something like that, I can't remember the exact behaviors you listed in the table here, versus, hmm, they cross their arms and then they touch their chin and they're stroking their chin like they can't remember and then they're scratching their nose and then they tell you that they went to Starbucks and had a late night coffee and stayed up all night because of the caffeine, you're thinking, that's weird, what a weird set of behaviors that normally wouldn't follow an obvious nonchalant story about what they ate for dinner. So it's easier to spot those since there are fewer truth signals that would match that behavior. Yes. When you're talking about Conan, you mentioned the authoritative voice. We talked before the show and you'd mentioned that a demonstration or proof of, of, of authority, that matters more than influence skills every time. What does that mean? That seems like a huge takeaway, potentially. I think it is. When we were writing the ellipsis manual, we wrote that book to be the most dangerous. I wanted to have like a surgical manual of persuasion. And we went from just talking somebody into doing something for you to actual word for word script on how to create a Manchurian candidate and doing all of this like black ops type of persuasion stuff. We discovered that 
the authority a person has, the social or perceived authority a person has is more important than the skill level they have. And this was proven in a study done by Stanley Milgram, who is a professor at Yale. Are you familiar with it? I am not. Let's go over it. And even if I were, we should go over it uh, in, in any case for the uh, folks at home. I'm curious, though, before we get into that, what do you mean that skills don't trump authority? Are we talking about the ability to persuade someone using little techniques and tactics is dwarfed by the results when somebody just has a higher level of authority? Yes. Okay. So the Milgram study was done at Yale, and it's been repeated, I think, hundreds of times. And they have a volunteer who volunteers for this experiment on learning. And he goes in there and he has this machine that's hooked up to a guy in the other room and it's got electrodes on it. They walk this guy in there and they say, oh, this guy's going to be learning. He's another volunteer. He's got this electrodes all over him that's going to shock him. You're going to be delivering shocks every time he gets the answer wrong. They walk the volunteer back to the other room, sit him down at this machine. It's got all these switches from left to right on it. And it goes from like zero volts all the way to X, X, X. So there's like 50 switches on this machine. And every time this guy keeps getting these words wrong, this guy who is running the experiment, standing behind them in a lab coat and a clipboard, says, you, you need to shock him, deliver 120 volts, deliver 200 volts. So it keeps just ramping it up. And the guy in the other room getting shocked is screaming for his life, saying, I want to quit. I'm done. Let me out of here. I, I don't want to participate anymore. I have a heart problem. All of this just nonstop protesting going on from the other room. And these volunteers sitting there at a rate of 80% would shock the other person to the point of death. Yikes. To where the banging on the wall, the yelling, the begging for help completely stop. And they're shocking him over and over again, continuing to shock him. All because a guy in a lab coat with no name tag used phrases like, it's important that you continue. The experiment requires that you continue. Just phrases like that. 80% of people shocked another human being to death because a guy in a lab coat told them to. And the guy in the other room wasn't getting shocked. Right, of course, he's an actor in the study. Yes, so the only person that was a volunteer for the experiment was the person delivering the shocks. That must have been pretty traumatizing for the people in that study after the fact, knowing that they essentially would, had that been real, they would have murdered that person. Absolutely. After the experiment was over, there were several people that filed official complaints against Dr. Milgram saying that he caused post-traumatic stress disorder, what we would call that today anyway. <laughs> and the experiment was repeated in urban areas outside of a college environment. Uh, because some of the people that were detractors said these people knew that they were safe. They were in a lab environment. It was taking place on a campus, so they knew nobody could really get hurt. Uh, so they repeated the study in several different settings to eliminate all of these negative feedback that they got from the experiment. And several other studies have been done on authority, like the crosswalk study, a guy wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt who breaks the crosswalk illegally and starts walking across the street. A couple of people will follow him. But a guy wearing a suit and tie, the same guy wearing a suit and tie, breaking a crosswalk and going across the street, 
increases the likelihood by 66% of the people will break the crosswalk with him and go across the street. Because of the perceived authority of somebody wearing a suit versus jeans, and in the Milgram study, because of the perceived authority of the person wearing a lab coat slash plastic badge, correct? Yes. So are there different types of authority? I mean, clearly this one is, in this Milgram study, it sounds like some of that was probably contextual. They're in a lab in a university. That was the, the negative feedback and part of it. And some of it has to do with the appearance of the person who's in authority. Are there other types of factors involved that we can look at? There are. They chose the guys with the lab coats. They chose guys that were really hygienic. They were good looking guys. They looked like they were professional doctors. Um, they didn't wear name tags that said doctor, which is a, a, a gray lab coat is what they used. What the, the takeaway from that that I think was lost on a lot of people is that a man wearing a lab coat can convince a stranger to commit murder in less than 30 minutes without any skills, no hypnosis, no persuasion training, nothing, just authority. Okay, so the obvious follow-on question is, how do we hack this, right? Do I need to carry a lab coat in my backpack? Do I have to have one steamed and hanging in my car? Where do we go with this that we can use that for good? And then of course, after that, I wanna know what you're afraid of people using this to do. Well, when we were writing the book, the authority chapter was originally just gonna be something small that we added in there. And we discovered how powerful it was. And some of the people that were reading it said that it changed them. So we distilled authority down into five qualities. And this kind of goes back to pickup in that when I first started learning pickup tricks and tactics, it was all ways to fake or pretend like you were an actual man, like you had your stuff together. We distilled these down into five qualities, which are dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and fun. And by dominance, I don't mean domineering. I mean someone who's just got their stuff together. And it's amazing how many people, when we talk about discipline, email me and say, oh, I want to learn some of these psychological manipulation tactics or whatever. And just interviewing this guy over Skype or over the phone, I can tell like he doesn't even make his bed in the morning. <laughs> he's probably way behind on bills. He's got probably got a pile of dishes in his sink. It's just the guy's kind of a slob, can't take care of himself, but he wants to take control of another human being. And that goes back to just if you can't manage yourself, it will leak out. Your persuasion skills can be perfect. Your confidence can be perfect. But if you have issues with any of those five qualities, it will leak out somehow in your body language. And that's the example of that is when a woman is talking to somebody and everything looks like it's going right. And she says something just doesn't feel right. Something feels off. So that is our nonverbal leakage of not mastering some of one of those qualities or lacking in one of those. We'll be right back with more from Chase Hughes after these messages. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. 
With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year, and I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Chase Hughes. Sure, of course. And at our boot camps and things like that, one of the common refrains is, that your mindsets dictate your behaviors, which dictate your results. And what that essentially means is, look, you can try to fake it till you make it, and you can have all this cool, dominant guy body language, and you can have all the clever lines that people like to teach on the internet, but it doesn't really matter, because if you don't have your internal state together, that whole blink concept, that Malcolm Gladwell concept, is going to bite you in the butt, because People who are evolved to see this, in other words, humans in general who are evolved to see this, especially the fairer sex, are going to sense that something is not quite right. And we don't even have to identify what that particular nonverbal communication is and why it's coming through. It's all, there's always going to be some leakage. Our bodies are terrible liars. And so it really does pay instead to have the mindset together instead. And so when you're looking at authority and things like that, a lot of guys who are trying to pick up women are just hacking authority. And so it doesn't work for relationships and it doesn't work if people are really paying attention to the, the signals that are coming out. Even when somebody is highly skilled at doing this, somebody who's paying attention and not just being willfully blind, they're going to pick up some leakage and that's going to be the red flag that spoils the batch. Brilliant. And that's it. Like if you have everything memorized, all these techniques memorized and you can't make your bed, you can't pay your bills on time. It's not going to happen for you. Right. I like mixing metaphors, as you can see. You've really got to take control over yourself first and be live a life of self-discipline. And that's one of the things that just shines through all of your nonverbal communication, especially in a one on one situation. When you're in a one on one conversation and you have that maturity and ground groundedness and self-discipline, it really shows through. 
automatically without talking about it, without discussing it. It's a feeling that the other person gets. So if we can hack authority for getting people to murder someone else in a lab and men everywhere are trying to hack authority for getting women into bed, how do we hack this for something good, for the good of humanity? So when you do hack authority, this is managing your life and planning your life and living a life of self-discipline. Hacking authority means that you are mastering your environment and hacking it for good means that you are leaving every person better than you found them. Hmm, Where have I heard that before? And that when you do the authority hacking, whether it's through what you wear or increasing your level of hygiene, your level of physical fitness, all of these are methods to start hacking authority and developing your sense of working up these five qualities, the dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and fun. Working up those five qualities is the number one way to hack authority. So with the authority hacking, one of the biggest things that Milgram discovered was called an agentic shift, that when a person is in the presence of somebody in authority or somebody with perceived authority, social authority, we make a shift to become an agent doing the work of another person. So those people who were shocking the person in the other room underwent an agentic shift in the presence of that authority figure, the guy in the lab coat. So when this agentic shift happens, we expose the person we're speaking to or the person who's experiencing it is basically writes off whatever they do, as in being an agency for the person that they're speaking with. Right. I was just following orders, right, is how that sounds in practice. Yes. And that just following orders thing was one of the reasons they ran the experiment. Uh, Stanley Milgram's parents were in a prison camp and once this agentic shift is made, the psychological loopholes start to open up as wide as they can possibly be. So in the presence of a person that has this authority, we will obey and we will consider it to be either their idea or it's our idea, but we're doing it for the good of the other person. That's incredibly powerful. Of course, we can use this for habit change and things like that. And I was going to dive down that rabbit hole, but how are people using authority or potentially going to use authority to create negative outcomes for us here in the United States, for example, or the Western world, and how can we defend against that type of thing? For example, if I find myself talking with somebody in a lab coat, turning up the electrical shocks on some poor person, is there anything I can do to defend myself against that, or in the moment, am I already too late? I think in the moment, if you find yourself facing any type of authority that's making you do that, the only thing that can really get you out of that is that mindfulness and self-awareness of what you're doing at all times. And I think that is the less than 5% of the population who has the ability to do that. 100% of us would say, I would never shock another person to death, but 80% of us would. And I think that's the scary part, that we think we have a firewall. We think we have some virus protection in our own mind and we don't realize how easy it is for us to be hacked, our behavior to be hacked, our actions. So is there nothing we can do? And all we can do is hope we're part of the 5% of the population that is mindful enough to do this, or are there things we can do to inoculate ourselves against that type of influence? I think there's a way uh, to inoculate yourself. You have to really learn what's going on. You'll be able to spot some of these methods if they're being used on you, and they're Absolutely. There's going to be 
a point where you make a decision, uh, like a point of no return, and you feel that agentic state starting to shift over. But you have to be aware of that. So the time to counteract this, theoretically, is going to be when we start to feel the agentic shift kick in and that we're doing things not because we want to, but because somebody else has power over us. That's the earliest moment we recognize this. That's the time that we would what? Uh, try to get away from that particular person? Because it seems like, I guess we could look at our own behavior and try to decipher whether or not it's something we actually wanna do, but if authority really does have that power over us, then it seems like what we should do is get away physically from that authority. That would be one of the best ways to do it. It's very hard for us to resist as just all human beings, especially when that authority starts taking place or, or taking hold. Uh, leaving is definitely the best way to do it. We've spoken a lot about nonverbal communication, sort of how we started the show. I definitely wanna get a practical from you. The posture exercise sounds great, because it does prove not only that body language shows what's going on inside, it actually can create what is going on uh, inside as well. Absolutely, and I think the reason we study body language is, is the reverse of that. So if you do move your body, it can create an emotion on the inside, just like we display it on the outside when we're feeling an emotion. All right, so a great exercise to prove this to yourself is to slouch your posture down as much as you can. So like try to exhibit the physical characteristics of a person who's just downtrodden. He has no friends. People are talking crap about him in social media, just the, like the worst, most poor body language you can possibly exhibit. And while you're holding that, without moving a muscle, try to feel confident at the same time. It's almost impossible to do. So moving you physically will create an internal emotion. Right, this is an AOC concept as well. The mind follows the body and the body follows the mind. So you can essentially start to program the internal state by forcibly managing the external state, which is usually the reverse of how things are done, when people are doing it voluntarily, of course. The other part of the posture exercise is to prove to you that if you can talk someone into doing something, you can control their emotions based on their body. So if I can talk to you, I say, Jordan, I've read this interesting article about how successful people tend to breathe into their stomachs more than their chest. I'm forcing the body language of comfort on you and forcing you to be more comfortable. Can you clarify that? I'm not sure I follow that. Sure. So if I can get you to start exhibiting different body language, I can get you to ex experience a different emotional state. So if I get you to match and mirror me and I start sitting up or I start slowing my breathing down, I can force your body, and I say force with big quotes around it, I can get you to start coalescing with mine. Let me just clarify this. So it sounds like what you're saying is the reason you're telling somebody that the body language of success or that successful people breathe through their stomach and not through their chest is because you I, you know that everybody else wants to be successful. So that statement will then convince me or suggest to me that I should breathe through my stomach instead of through my chest, which makes me more relaxed, which is the actual outcome that you're going for. So you're subtly suggesting to me, instead of saying, breathe through your stomach and relax, you're saying, hey, by the way, this quality that I know you want involves you taking this action physically, but then by taking that action physically, you're getting me to do something else that you want that you haven't stated. Yes. Got it, okay, that makes sense. And so you're doing this subtly during interrogations, during conversations to get people to take on a certain physicality so that you can get them to do other things and become more compliant, correct? 
Yes. So you start processing them into going into comfort or getting more relaxed and you get more compliance. Right. Okay. This makes perfect sense. So one of the things I used to do way back in the day, and again, sort of a boot camp technique for AOC guys and girls is, for example, if someone's arms are crossed and we're talking, say we're in a negotiating situation as attorneys or in business, if they've got their arms crossed, I may do something where I hand them a drink uh, and I slide that across the table. Usually people will not just sit there with a drink in front of them and their arms crossed, they'll reach out and get it. And when you have somebody who reaches out to get it, uh, they they're oftentimes will keep their hand there. And if you're in a dating situation, you can have a glass, like a martini glass, which looks unstable, and you can slide it across from them, or you can keep it uh, sliding away from them as well so that they have to uncross their arms to bring it back into the proximity that they would need for something like their drink, because people don't want their drink to be too far outside their psychological space. So to make that a little bit more clear, if you're, say, out with friends at night and you're talking with somebody and they close off, you may slide their drink further away from them, causing them to uncross their arms and hold on to their drink, which uncrosses their arms. That's sort of the similar situation where you tell somebody, hey, successful people do this, and then they start to emulate that behavior, only I'm doing it a little bit more brute force method, it sounds like. That's terrific. And just mentioning something like when you're complaining about somebody, saying they never look at people when they speak, or he always has his shoulders up and he's so rigid. Complaining about another person would force the same kind of body language behaviors. Right, so if you wanna get your kids to stop, stop slouching, or a friend or a significant other to stop slouching, you might say something like, yeah, you know what, one of my pet peeves I just realized is when people just cannot stand up straight. You don't have to be looking at them to do that. It might be a little too on the nose. You could even say this to them over the phone and you can almost hear them straighten up on the other end and say, yeah, that drives me crazy as well. And you could absolutely influence someone's physicality based on that. Now, whether or not that sticks is irrelevant, of course, because we're not trying to change their habit, we're just trying to change their physicality in the moment so that we can elicit a certain mindset, right? Yes. Perfect. Man, there's there's so much here that I wanna wrap with the x-ray vision for a day exercise. Can you guide us through that? Sure, the x-ray question is just a simple question that we teach to the students as they're going through the first part of their training phase. And it's basically designed to expose the people around you. And the question you asked is, what do their friends say to them that makes them feel good or cool? What makes them feel significant in the world? And finally, where are they on the needs map? And the human needs map is something that we use for profiling other people. And the basic human needs we have on there are appreciation, approval, acceptance, intelligence, power, admiration, pity, and intelligence. I mentioned intelligence twice, I apologize. That's okay, it's twice as important as everything else maybe. You never know, maybe that's yours. Maybe that's why you uh, it's uh, on the top of your head. I don't know, Chase. We'll dig into your psychology later. So how do we do this exactly, right? We're looking at where people need attention from others when they do things to gain appreciation. Can you give us an example of this in action so that people know exactly what they're looking for? Whenever you hear a conversation, you can hear this almost at any point if you were to inject yourself in someone else's conversation. When you're listening to someone talk, they will start revealing these needs. If they talk about, hey, I just got this, this, and this for my birthday or I just graduated from this MMA fighting school, or hey, I came down and I folded laundry for you. So what do they need to be appreciated for? Or what do they need to feel acceptance to? 
So these will reveal themselves. All you have to do is change the way that you start listening to how people speak, and you will start to hear all kinds of human needs in there. And those needs are tremendous lever points that you can use in interaction. And that's what we detailed in the ellipsis manual, how to do all this and how to identify the fears and weaknesses based on what needs a person has. And this is by no means an academic text on human needs. These are just the ones that are most easily to spot and the easiest to use in a conversation. Can you give us an example of using this in our daily lives that we can apply right after we hear this? Absolutely. If you hear a person tell you four or five things where they're seeking appreciation from you, so they did a favor for you, they are offering to do a favor for you or something to that effect. So anytime a person is seeking appreciation, you can use that appreciation factor to give them appreciation or approval or acceptance, whatever you're hearing from them. Use the appreciation and give them appreciation the next time right before you ask them to do something for you. So in practice, that would look like what? In practice, that would look like, hey, you have really been there for me like seven times in a row. I really appreciate everything you've been doing. I have a favor to ask if you wouldn't mind. So that would be for a person that is appreciation motivated. Right, it's not just for everybody because somebody might be like, yeah, you're right, I do way too much for you. But if they're appreciation motivated, then that's really what they're going for, right? So they'll do something in order to get more of it. Yes, and the approval people would operate a little bit different. Sure, can you give an example of the approval people? How do we detect an approval-seeking person and how do we use that, for example, to go a little dark side here at the end of the show? Approval-seeking people tend to brag a little bit, and they will look at you anytime they say something positive about themselves. So right after they say something positive, they'll look at you to make sure there's an effect, like a nonverbal effect. With people that seek approval, you can hear that immediately when they start doing that. And the thing that will tell you that they are the approval-seeking people is that look. You'll get the look right after they say it. And anytime you want to use this on the person who seeks approval, obviously the thing that they fear the most is being rejected. Can you give us an actual example of this in in practice, the actual phrasing that we might be hearing, the actual phrasing we might give in return? For approval-seeking people, the way that you might want to ask for a favor is, hey, Jordan, I was talking to uh, Stephen and Lindsay, and they are extremely excited to have you on the team. They said you're one of the best people ever out here. And I wanted to ask you a favor if that's all right with you. So you're validating that socially they are being approved by a group of people. How do we know that they're approval seeking in the first place? That would be based on any time you have a conversation with them and you hear them talking about themselves and making that eye contact right after they say something positive about themselves. So can you give us an example of them saying something positive about themselves and then looking at us and then us using that to our advantage? So somebody says, hey, Jordan, you know, I just graduated from the MMA school just down, right down the road, and then he makes a little bit of eye contact right after he says it. That is, bar none, absolutely an approval-seeking person. And the way to do that, you could, if especially if that's it, you could validate them by saying talking about their accomplishments right before you ask them for a favor. So we can constantly be on the lookout for people's motivators by listening to the way that they talk both about themselves or especially about themselves. Um, what other sort of examples can we use to examine what people's motivators are? If we know that that's approval seeking, what are the other 
modes of behavior and what are the phrases these people might be using? Uh, Well, there's several. There's acceptance. And these people who drive through acceptance have a need to be accepted by a group or just one person. And especially if you have the authority, you will create acceptance seeking people just by your own behavior. So that's not the person's regular MO. And the people that the rest of the needs and like the intelligence, power, admiration, those are people who need to be seen as intelligent. They don't need to be intelligent. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that I think leaders make now is that all of this business about identifying the strengths of your employees is about identifying what they do well, how well the mechanism performs a task. And instead of trying to figure out what a person's good at, try to figure out what they want to be seen as being good at. And you will get 10 times the results. All right. Well, Chase, thank you so much. There's so much here. Each little area that we've touched on today is a whole show, right? The approval-seeking behavior, finding out people's motivators, using motivators to get results, uh, examining nonverbal communication, figuring out which nonverbal communication is true and what it means in concert with the environment. There's just so much here. And I think that if people are wondering, oh my gosh, what do I do with this now? Examining people's behavior, figuring out how to make yourself more observant, worry about utilizing these concepts later on. But for now, the big takeaway is learn what you can absorb just from paying attention to the right channels. And I think that will make people much more effective than they were before they hit play on this episode. So Chase, thank you very much for your time. Great big thank you to Chase Hughes. The book title is The Ellipsis Manual. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes along with the behavioral table of the elements that we're giving away. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Chase on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Chase Hughes. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. As usual, we'll be replying to your questions and feedback for Chase on Fan Mail Friday. And remember, if you are looking for those show notes, you can tap the album art, aka your phone screen in the podcast player to see the show notes for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone there. Also, we've got our AOC challenge. If you wanna start applying this stuff and using it, check out theartofcharm.com slash challenge or at a red light there, text AOC to 38470. That's AOC to 38470. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It is free. A lot of people don't seem to know that, but it's free. That's the idea. It's a fun way to start the ball rolling and get some forward momentum. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, just like we talked about today, charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, influence strategies, also similar to what we discussed today, but even more in-depth and practical persuasion tactics, everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to 38470. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. The theme music by Little People, transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I am your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. 
Word of mouth really is everything. So share the show with your friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.